1: Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast.
0: I'm your host, Jim R. Today is episode 91 and we're interviewing Amy W. How are you, Amy?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. So let's dive in here and get started. Tell me about growing up.
1: Um, growing up, I grew up in an upper middle class home. Um, I actually, my parents divorced when I was about three years old and my dad, um moved out. So we really didn't have a lot of contact with them. My dad was an alcoholic. Um, he spent, he was, he was actually a very popular college professor too, but when he retired and he lived on a golf course, uh, the drinking just, just started to consume him. And I really wasn't raised around him, which just goes to show how powerful this disease is because I wasn't raised around alcohol, uh, very little alcohol in my home with my mother. Um, I knew my dad was an alcoholic, but we really didn't have a lot of contact with him. Uh, by all rights, I had a great childhood. Um, <clears throat> I was well taken care of. I went to great schools. I made great grades. I, I went to college. Uh, I had a great uh, mother. I had great siblings. And uh, my dad ended up dying of his disease probably about five years ago. Uh, he really, he shortened his life significantly. Because of alcohol, and I, I hated my dad for most of my childhood and my adult life until I understood. Until it, um, until I was plagued with the disease as well, and I didn't give the disease enough respect and how powerful it is. But like I said, I wasn't raised in that environment. I wasn't raised in a, in a dysfunctional home, if you will, where. Uh, I had to escape with drinking or using drugs. And honestly, I didn't even start drinking until, really start drinking until my 30s. I partied in in college, but nothing really stuck. And uh, after that, once once I started drinking really heavily in my 30s, my now ex-husband and I, we lived in Orlando, Florida for eight years. And we didn't have kids at the time. And we had a lot of money. And so we just, we partied it up. And the only difference was I couldn't stop and he did.
0: So what was it like growing up with a divorced parents?
1: It was, to me, it was my normal because like I said, they divorced when I was three. So I don't remember my dad really even being around at the time. I had a wonderful stepfather who passed away of cancer, uh, probably about a year after my my dad. And I, the one thing that I can tell you that I remember is other kids having their dads at events that my dad didn't come or, and, and I don't know why this, this sticks out to me still to this day, but I think we were freshmen in high school and we are, we were all trying out for cheerleading. And I remember one of my best friends, her dad brought her roses and, and she was so excited. And I was like, that was just so foreign to me. It was just bizarre. Uh, my mom worked as a single parent until uh, until she married again, and um, I don't know because I don't know something that I never had. I don't know what to miss exactly.
0: No, I know the feeling. My parents got divorced when I was young. I was a bit older. I was eight, um, but even then, I don't even at eight years old, I don't know if I blacked it out or not. I don't have like memories of my parents living together. Do you have any memories of that? Or is it just because you were too young? You don't remember.
1: I was too young. I don't remember. I have photos. And in fact, I just ran into them the other day when I was cleaning out some stuff and it's just bizarre to me. I do remember um, after they divorced, my dad was supposed to have us every other weekend. And that was definitely interesting when we did have them, when we did go over to his house, the music would be blaring. I think it was, oh gosh, who was it back then? Um, oh, I'll remember all the old seventies music. And he'd be he'd be drunk, and he'd be loud, and that's what I remember mostly about my my dad. But we did have some good times. He would call. He would have us come over. He he ended up dating one of his students and married to one of his students and we would go over there especially as as we got older as um adults and we would play games with them and we'd stay the night but it was always always a huge drunken fest he would always get just just ploughed i don't even know my dad sober even when i knew what time to call him when i was an adult like for fathers day or birthdays all the required dates to call your dad And I do remember calling him and I would have to call him at a certain time because I knew after three o'clock is when he started drinking. And my dad wasn't a bad person. He was a really good person and he had a good heart. He just, he had a disease and the disease is that powerful. And people often say, and it's just not true. People will say he chose, he chose alcohol or he chose drugs over his family. And that's just not true. I don't know one addict that can't wait to wake up and, and have to go into maintenance mode and score, whether it's drugs or go to the store to get liquor. So they don't go into withdrawal because I know all about what, what withdrawal is. And I saw my dad go into it multiple times and I do recall, um, he had a stroke. So these are all the things that, um, are, are you, you're, you're well-versed in, in addiction.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah. I've done a lot of studying, a lot of firsthand experience. I mean, you're episode 91. So those are all interviews I've done with people. Look at the I've met a lot of addicts. Yeah. Ever since I started this group.
1: It's a really, really um sp special AA is a very, very special group. And I'm really fortunate to have found it. There's nothing better than walking into a room and being fully understood. And I, I have a lot of regrets with my dad because when he died, I was angry and everything flooded in from my childhood. Excuse me, I'm going to, um, everything flooded, but I remember he, I don't know if he was going through withdrawal when he had a stroke, but he had a stroke and these were his latter years. And because of that stroke, because of the drinking, he ended up in a nursing home for a while. Uh, He finally was released and he was at home one day and my stepmother served him his dinner in the living room. And she went back to prepare her dinner and she came out and he was face down on the floor. And because of the stroke, when he was eating, she had made some type of meat that night. He had swallowed a piece of meat because he was paralyzed on um, his left side, it went down the wrong pipe and he choked to death. And so he, we were, we were called and went to the hospital and, and he had been brain dead for a while at that point. And so uh, I, I remember everyone gathering around my dad um, waiting for his last breath, and people are crying, they're holding hands and they're praying. And I couldn't figure out what is wrong with me. Why, why do I have no emotion? Like I was almost just uncomfortable. Like I felt like I had to force some tears. But um, when I started counseling, I remember my counselor said, I asked him, I said, Is something wrong with me? Like, why am I so void of emotion? And he said, Amy, you said goodbye to your dad a long time ago. And he said, you, you know, you had to, to get through, through the years without a father. And then I was really the only child that argued uh, with my dad, because I didn't agree with uh, his style of living. And not that I was trying to be critical, but he was very abusive to my stepmother. And I didn't agree with that. Um he would, he had hit her before, uh, very, very, very verbally abusive. And So we would get into arguments about that when I was there because I just wouldn't tolerate that in front of us, him embarrassing her. And she and I are still friends to this day and she's a good woman, but she's had to go through a lot of therapy herself because of my dad. And like I said, my dad is, is a good person, but I believe that addiction is the devil and he had a relationship with the devil and I know that he had regrets Uh, especially with me. And actually it was weird about three days before his passing, he had his pastor over and he said, if anything ever happens to me, will you just apologize to my youngest daughter? That's me. And he said, I really feel like I neglected her more than anybody else. And he did, but I have an older, two older siblings and uh, they have a very different relationship with my dad.
0: What kind of relationship was theirs versus yours?
1: um my sister's 6 years older than me so i think she had a lot a lot longer to um live with my parents and so she saw him differently because she remembers them living together my brother is 4 years older than me and honestly we don't have our family we don't have a relationship with him that's another long story but he is and my dad are a lot alike i don't think my brother is an addict but my my brother's very abusive to uh his wife and children. And it's just not something that we tolerate. And I remember I welcomed him in my home when he got his first divorce. And he just he's the spitting image of my dad. He he's he's exactly like my dad, just very, very verbally abusive. And we just he cut off all contact with us felt like we didn't support him in his divorce when really it was uh she was scared for her life and we were trying to protect her and the children but i i my i think well he ended up he, my brother has a very different relationship with my dad because he actually moved out and moved in with him and he lived with him during my dad's bachelor years and drinking years. And he has, he had a relationship with my dad. He worshiped my dad. My dad would take him hunting. It was, you know, it was this father son relationship. So they, they just had a very different relationship. I do know that when my sister, she moved to Springfield where we lived in Joplin at the time and she had twins and she would invite my dad to like their soccer games or recitals, that type of thing. And, and my dad would always say he was coming and he'd never show up. And it was the same with like Thanksgiving and dinner, like in his latter years, we were to go over to his house to spend Christmas or Thanksgiving. And he'd get so drunk that he would cancel. And I would say that the worst memory that I have of my dad was when I got married in 2000 and we actually had the reception at at Loma Linda. Um, the country club because he lived on the golf course and so we had the reception there and I figured if we had the reception there my dad would have to show up Um, and he attended the wedding and he was at the reception but he said he was going to go home and change but he ended up getting so drunk that he wasn't able to come back and miss the father-daughter dance everything and so when they called him up and like nobody could figure out where he was and the next day he called me as if it was so funny, and he said, I'm sorry I missed the father-daughter dance. Uh, Jack and Jim came over, Jim Beam and Jack Daniels came over, and I couldn't say no, as if it was just hilarious. So I harbored a lot of resentment for him to the point where when he died, I, didn't, I attended the funeral, but I certainly I, I, didn't, I didn't go to the casket, uh, walk to the, up to the casket and pay my respects. I didn't do any of that. Because I felt like he didn't deserve my respect. Now, looking back, um, I get it. I understand. And I've actually asked for forgiveness for it because I feel like I failed him. Because here I am going to AA meetings. And did I ever invite him? No. He would have never gone. He, he didn't believe he was an alcoholic. But who am I to judge another? Because they sinned differently than me. We, I mean, we ended up having the same disease. We ended up going down a really horrible path and I was, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm blessed with, uh, by my higher power. I'm blessed, you know, by the group and that I survived because I should have died multiple times in, in my disease. And that's a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother chapter.
0: Well, we'll get into that in a few. So. What was your life like once you graduated high school?
1: Um, I went straight to college. My dad uh, was a college professor in Joplin. And so I got a faculty waiver. And so my college was super, super cheap. I got my uh, undergrad degree in criminal justice. I got my associate's degree in law enforcement. And excuse me, later on, I would go to get uh, my master's in education and my uh, master's certificate in child forensic psychology. Um, I actually plan to go back to school again, which is crazy, but I would like to, I'd like to get certified to work with addicts. You know, I've worked with them so much in my adult life uh, with what I do for a living, uh, working in the criminal justice um, field. And I not only understand it on a personal level, I understand it, uh, you know, uh, educationally you know you you can study it like you said you've studied it and then to understand it on a personal level both through my my father and both through me you know it, it takes it to another level and I have a lot of compassion you know people judge those addicts like it's, it's it has some um stigma attached to it that you're a junkie or disgusting um and and you know, most of my clients, whether they were inmates at the time or they were on probation, I was supervising them, the kindest people you'll ever meet. And people assume if you have an addiction that you should be shunned and looked down upon. And people still do that to me. And like I said, I came from a pretty good family on my mom's side and they're very well known. And still i'm i'm looking it, i'm just i'm very very judged especially in a small town that i live in which is really unfortunate and my children are having to see uh the hypocrisy in people who say they love you but they will they will degrade me not allow their children to come over and play and it's really affected my kids because of that. And these are people that are pillars in our community. They are, they work for one of the local churches. They're very, you know, religious. I don't really like that word, but they're they're very religious. And, uh, yeah, they they they're very it's it's hypocrisy at its best. No, so I digress.
0: No, I'm sorry to hear that. So when did you start first realizing you had an issue with addiction?
1: So I moved to Orlando in 99. Uh, my my then husband, we're divorced now. We got married in 2000. He was my childhood friend. We didn't start dating until after college, but he was my childhood friend. I've known him since I was 12 years old. And we grew up together and we moved to Orlando. I got a job as a probation officer with juveniles at the time, worked with a lot of gang uh, units, and we just lived life. We we partied, we used meth, we, we experimented with ecstasy, um, pretty much everything but heroin. None of that really stuck with me, and so when we decided to get pregnant with our now daughter, she's 16, We decided to get pregnant and that's when I realized, I think I might have a problem because I couldn't stop drinking. And it was, I white knuckled it the entire time. It was so difficult and I could not figure out what was happening to me because I knew I wasn't an alcoholic. I'm I'm not an alcoholic. I'm in my thirties. What? That's crazy. You know, I'm 32 years old. If I were to be an, if I was going to be an addict, it would have already reared its ugly head, but that's just not the case. So when we had our daughter, we moved back to Missouri uh, to be closer to our family. And uh, I fell into a serious postpartum depression and I wasn't sleeping and alcohol helped me sleep and the bottles just started to accumulate. And at night when everybody would go to sleep, that's when I would drink and the bottles, bottles accumulated and it soon turned into day drinking. I would call my mom and ask her if she could pick up the baby. And I would, I would drink all day. And finally, um, it got to the point where, because I drank wine at the time, I decided I'm going to switch over to vodka because then there aren't as many bottles. I don't have to have that much to drink. I can hide it in water bottles, in the refrigerator, and I can come and openly drink. And he would never know anything about it. And then when...
0: Who is he, he, your husband?
1: Yeah, my husband. yeah, he's the father of both of my kids. And you know, I think he just didn't want to face it. He didn't want to believe that I had a problem because we had this picture-perfect family. Um, I was able to stay home with my daughter, um, which I commend all of those women out there that are able to stay home with their children. I'm in awe of you, because I'm the type of mom where I have to work, or at least part-time. And I remember telling uh, their dad because he made a lot of money. And so I was able to stay home and it was, and we were still very comfortable. And so I told him, I said, I have to work at least part-time. And she was about two at this time. And I remember like it was yesterday. And he said, do you know how many of my employees, he was a big wig, would kill to be in your position? So I felt like I was... I I wasn't grateful enough and I felt like I was being super selfish. And so I just kind of closed my mouth and and I was the best housewife and I was the best mother and, you know, perfect dinners and a perfect home. And we lived in a beautiful home and we had all the, all the toys, the boat, you know, the cars and, and we had it all, uh, except I I was losing myself in the bottle. And like I said, nothing else stuck with me, the meth um anything anything and we used we used quite a bit of meth and and cocaine but like I was able to put that down and walk away but the bottle I was not and it just it got worse and worse and worse and then we got pregnant with our son three years later so my daughter was three and my disease had because because we all know it's a progressive disease and it had progressed to the point where I could not get sober and I ended up in the hospital and that's when they told me that my son, I mean, it's really hard to talk about that. My, my son could be born with deformities. And so I literally put myself through rehab pregnant and I, it, it was the most humbling yet humiliating experience I've ever gone through. I went there and most they would have family in rehab and I'd never been to rehab before. I didn't know what to expect. And families would come and they thought I was staffed because I was pregnant and I was clearly pregnant. And they were like, I said, Oh, I I don't work here. I'm, I'm a client. And they looked at me. They were like, you're a client. Shame on you. Shame on you because I was pregnant. And I was like, I I thought I was doing the right thing. I was trying to save my son's life, you know, and, and going into a rehab and getting sober, I gained 20 pounds in rehab because I hadn't gained any because I was always so sick. And, um, while it's, it's hard to talk about, I'm, I'm able to talk about it a little bit better, but I would, I had to go through six years of therapy. Um, my son, I gave birth to my son sober. Um, He was very, very little though, and like very little. And they initially, they diagnosed him with fetal um, alcohol effect, uh, FAE, instead of fetal alcohol syndrome. And it was the hardest, and it's still to this day, But I will tell you that my higher power, whom I I choose to call God, um, he really protected my son because my son is perfect today. He's 13. He is is intelligent. He's the top reader in his class. Um, He's brilliant. But with the amount of alcohol that I was drinking, I went in the hospital when I was pregnant with him, sick with a a and. They were shocked that I had not miscarried, but because of all of that, they diagnosed him almost immediately. And my son obviously doesn't know anything about this because I don't want him to think anything's wrong with him because since then we've, we've gone to specialists and we've seen psychologists and we've seen, uh, a, a, we went and got a, an MRI on him. And the only thing is that he has to take growth hormones because he's not growing like he should. But other than that, he's, he's perfect. Um, after that, after I gave birth, my disease spiraled very, very, very quickly because I started drinking again about four months after I gave birth. So I was sober for probably the last four months of my pregnancy And four months after I gave birth. And then once I started, I picked up a bottle. Once that happened, it, it was all downhill from there. We ended up my, my ex uh, divorced me when I was, when my son was 10 months old and uh, I have the craziest story. And so I remember he got home from work one day and he had asked my mom to pick up the kids. And I was like, what is going on? Why are you home early? And he just started crying and there was a knock at my door and I went to go get it. And I was served with papers for, at the time it was for a separation, a legal separation. And he said, you have to leave the house. And if you don't leave, I have to call the police to have you escorted out. And I said, this is my home. Where am I supposed to go? I don't work. Like I, I was at the, the peak, the height of my career as I was a supervisor for probation unit, I was making a lot of money. I was well-respected and I gave all that up uh, to be a stay-at-home mom. And now I have no job and I have nowhere to go. And from there, um, I refused to leave. So the police came and they uh, told me I had to. And my ex told me, Well, I got you a hotel for a couple of nights. I'm like, how thoughtful. Like, what am I supposed to do? He said, I can't worry about that right now. I have to keep our kids safe. And honestly, if if looking back, I was bitter and resentful at the time, but what he did wasn't wrong because my kids didn't need to be around me. Um, I was putting my kids in danger. You couldn't trust me around them because of my alcohol addiction. And so I remember going to a hotel that night. And after that, everything, I was homeless. I was bouncing from motel to motel. Um, I was staying with any man that would take me. Um, Not one of my finer moments. I would do whatever it took to drink. And when I say whatever it took, I did whatever it took. Um, This went on for months. I finally put myself through another rehab at the time. And then another rehab and then finally a fourth rehab. And I had very minimal contact with my kids. I missed out on a lot. And the last rehab that I had gone to, I was there for five months, but, and not a lot of people know this now, everybody's going to know this, but um, my last rehab I was drinking day and night. I couldn't get a job. You know, luckily I had some funds set aside through stocks and bonds that my grandparents had got, had uh, kept for me. And so that's what I was living off of. But I was drunk day and night, day and night. And I wouldn't even know what time it was. I'd keep a bottle of vodka under my pillow. And um, I do remember my neighbors would heckle me. They were a couple of college kids. I lived in a duplex. And to the point where I was, I was scared for my safety and my landlord put a a security system in my home. And one night I was asleep. I was passed out on the couch and I heard a knock at the door. I didn't know, like I said, what time it was to me, it could have been, you know, 12 noon. I had no idea. And I opened the door and it was my neighbor. And I noticed it was dark out and I'm like looking at my watch, like, what time is it? And it was three in the morning. And I said, you can't stay here. What are you doing here? And he said, I'm not going anywhere. And he came in and we fought. And I remember going over to my alarm and my panel and just punching it, trying to to set off the um, panic in it and it wouldn't work. And he starts taking off his pants and uh, fondling himself, laughing at me. And we fought for what seemed like eternity. And he raped me on my kitchen floor. And I remember after he left, I called the police and the police didn't believe me. They thought that I was, I'd had a party because my place was in shambles. There was like wine bottles broken that were on my kitchen table because we fought. There were, you know, vodka bottles. It just looked like I'd had a huge party gone wrong. And so I tried to file a report, but they didn't take me seriously. They thought I was just a drunk. And here I am, I'm in the field, the same field as them. As a, a former probation officer and former pretrial officer, worked with the, the the worst gangs in Orlando, Florida, in juvenile with juvenile, and now I'm being looked at like I am the most pitiful, vile human, and I just had the the most the worst thing that can happen to a woman happen to me, and I'm calling on my. Comrades, you know the people that I worked with on a day-to-day basis, and they looked at me and could have spit on me. They were so disgusted. So it was at that point I decided um, to go back to rehab, and that was in Oklahoma. When I would, got there, I was so bad I was actually in detox for 14 days, which is just unheard of, typically. And uh, my withdrawal was really bad, but as I was starting to get through it, I was, remembered I was drying my hair one day and I noticed a lump under my arm. And so they took me to the doctor and they said, they told me it was a tumor. And so I, they told me that they had to have surgery to cut it out because they didn't know if it was malignant or not or benign. And that I had to have surgery. They gave me a pregnancy test course, I didn't think, you know, anything of it. Well, I was, I was pregnant from the rape and they told me if I didn't have the surgery that I could die. And so they encouraged me to get an abortion and I did. So I'm sitting in rehab alone in my room. And because I was so early, just a few weeks, uh, I was able to give a medicinal abortion. And so I sat in my room in rehab and and I took the medicine and I had an abortion in my room. And, uh, this is one of the big reasons I, I went to therapy too, because it's just would I've done things differently. I don't know. Uh, the tumor that I had is a very rare form of cancer called schwannoma. It's a derivative of the nerves. And when they cut open my arm, I lost feeling in my arm for about a year. I couldn't, I couldn't use my arm. Um, luckily I, I didn't have to go through, I miss you know, Orally, I took medication, but I didn't have to go through any chemo or radiation. They removed the tumor intact. They caught it really in time. And so I, at that rehab, I remember my ex brought my kids down to see me and he wanted to work things out, but I was so bitter and resentful and angry and stupid that I, I, told him that he failed me and I would never, there was too much water under the bridge and I would never go back with him. And like, I had some right to to even judge him or chastise him because I didn't, I wasn't even thinking about what I did to him and what I did to him. I broke his heart and addiction affects the entire family. We all know this. And I, I met a guy in rehab because that works and he happened to be European. And so when we both got out, we moved in together. Uh, my drinking started again and it just went downhill from there. We decided to move back to Europe where he was from in Belgium, Brussels. So I moved to Europe with this guy, uh, had Zoom meetings with my kids or back, I think it was Skype uh, with my kids to stay in contact with my kids because I missed them so much. But I was just told multiple times that I'm, I'm a worthless mother. I don't deserve my kids. I don't deserve to live. And I believed it. And I believed my kids were better off without me. And so when I, when I moved to Europe, um, found out he was very abusive. I've never been in an abusive relationship in my life. I've never had a man lay hands on me. I was not raised that way by my mom. And so when it happened, it shocked me. So he, um, he kicked me out of the apartment or the flat. And so I literally, for days, I panhandled, um, I made a lot of money because people there are infatuated with Americans. And I finally ended up, I didn't know how to leave because I was under his direct care. And so, because I wasn't a citizen, it was very difficult for me to leave. Finally, I was able to get a plane ticket, uh, and I, I got on the plane. I started drinking from the time I got on the plane until I got off into Atlanta and it was, I blacked out from there. I don't remember. I just woke up in an Atlanta hospital or emergency room with about a hundred other beds surrounding me because it was so packed and I didn't even know what happened. Uh, apparently I got so drunk. I became belligerent in the airport and they took me into custody and, um, took me to the hospital. When I didn't show up from on my flight home to Missouri, when my mother went to go pick me up, um, they filed a missing persons report, which was just devastating for my family. And they didn't know where I was. I didn't have a phone. I didn't, my, my laptop was dead. I just had my luggage. I had no money. I didn't know what to do. And, I was very, very fortunate that the airline agreed to give me another ticket uh, to go home if I didn't drink. And so I agreed to that. And I came home. I, I'm sure that I think that was probably in 2011 when I came home. And from there, it just it continued to spiral. Um, I tried going to meetings, but I just I just didn't feel like I was one of them. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not like you. I'm not, I'm, I'm not an alcoholic. It took me years to figure it out.
0: Isn't it funny how we, we all think we're the one that's different. Everyone, everyone I talk to, we all think, no, no, I, I'm just different from you guys. I don't have a problem. I just drink because it's fun or because I'm sad, or whatever the reason is. Always have a reason to drink.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And in, in reality, if the day ended in white, that's why I drank. You know, yeah. I, I drank for so many different reasons. You know, I was depressed and my kids hate me and my family hates me and <clears throat> my mother took me in and I put her through hell. I was so disrespectful. I had such a chip on my shoulder, look at everything I've gone through. And, and I don't, I don't take that lightly because I did go through a lot. I have a lot of PTSD because of, of the rape and the subsequent abortion. And then, you know, the. The surgery I went through and my my husband leaving me and we were together you know dating and married for 16 years and so the loss of that relationship was very um, significant to me I ended up I ended up um, being arrested twice for a DUI I have no convictions because I had a really good attorney I have no convictions for that but I finally started getting serious. I got a sponsor. My ex told me if I didn't get it together, that I wasn't going to see my kids again. So I just remember I went running that night and I just fell to my knees and just sheer exhaustion. And I cried out to God. And I said, if you're really there, you got to help me. And I didn't have another drink for eight and a half years. And it was, it was a huge turning point for me, but I had to relearn everything. And that may sound crazy to normal people. I I didn't know how to mow the lawn without having a beer. I didn't know how to cook dinner without having a glass of wine. I didn't know how to go to a restaurant without ordering an adult beverage.
0: Yep. That was one of the things when I was going to rehab right beforehand, I was thinking when I get out, what am I going to do? That's all I knew. It was like, it was literally, what am I going to do? Because when I got up, I drank, when I went to eat lunch, I drank, When I, you know what I mean? Throughout the day, I was always drink. The only time I wasn't drinking when I, I was at work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And actually I even, one day I was going through such withdrawal and that I took a little, one of those little airplane bottles with me just to smooth me out because my detoxes, I've been hospitalized at least if not over 50 times because my detoxes are so violent. Um, I mean, my, yeah, my withdrawals, um, I go into seizures. Um, I am so violently ill. Like I'm stroke, hypertension. I get hypertension every time. My blood pressure, it skyrockets and I'm I'm at risk for stroke every time. And so I go to the hospital. Every single time. And I was sober. I did well for eight and a half years. And then about a year ago, I relapsed, which was one hell of a relapse because you know we don't we don't start over from the beginning. We pick up where we last left off.
0: Yep. Yep. Yep.
1: And within within 72 hours, I was in the hospital because I had alcohol poisoning. There wasn't a time. I I never went to the hospital with anything less than a 0.35. It was usually right up at a 0.4. At one point it was a 0.5. And I'll never forget. uh, I was sitting up in bed and one of the nurses came in and he just got level to level, eye level with me. And he said, I have never in my 23 years of doing this met someone your size at that point. I was like 90 pounds soaking wet, your size. Lucid with a BAC at what you have and that you're alive, and he said, You are going to die. you understand that and at the same time, the doctor came in later and, and spoke to me he said you won't you won't make it to fifty. He said, You are drinking yourself to death, your organs are shutting down you cannot your body cannot handle this anymore and I listened and This relapse that I had, I mean, I destroyed my kids here. They got their mom back for so many years and and I went back to school. I got my master's, you know, I, I had huge plans and I let it back in. And I know that during that, those eight and a half years sober, that I stopped respecting the disease. I stopped respecting the power. I also stopped going to meetings. And, and I just completely had a disconnect from all of that and was just living my life. And when it took a hold of me again, it was horrible. I went to another rehab and I'm sober now, obviously, but I'm, I'm terrified of it now because I know if I go back again, I'm not coming back. So, and I, I had, i from the rehabs, the people that I've met, which are wonderful people that I've met, seven of them in the past 10 years have uh, died of either um, overdose or suicide because of their addiction. So it's, it's been very humbling. And now I just, I try to help other people and try to share my experience, strength and hope with other people and show them that it can be done. And I've had multiple people tell me that they've never seen that my disease is so, I mean, I'm extreme at everything I do and I'm a little crazy anyway, but when I drink, it's like, I mean, I always either find myself behind bars or (laughs) jails, institutions or death. Right. So, and the only thing I'm missing is the death. I did drink myself into a coma one time uh, I was in a coma for four days my one of my lungs had collapsed my kidneys were shutting down my organs were failing um, it I had defecated myself my everything was just everything was just falling apart and I remember I woke up in ICU with a tube down my throat because I wasn't breathing on my own they told my family to prepare for my funeral that I wasn't gonna make it And I woke up with a tube in my throat and I freaked out and I started yanking it out because it scared me, but I didn't know that one of my lungs had collapsed. And yet I still got out of the hospital and I drank. That is, that is the definition of insanity. And until you walk through those rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, nobody understands you and you feel like you're crazy you feel like you're absolutely crazy because even i could not give a reason why are you not only destroying yourself but why are you putting your kids through this because when i'm sober i'm an, i'm an awesome mom um i would never hurt my children like they're my life they're my everything why would i ever hurt my children i wouldn't but the addict would and so i had to learn how to compartmentalize that i'm an addict but I always tell my ex, you didn't divorce me, you divorced the addict because mm-hmm. I was at the peak of my disease. And that sounds crazy to other people. When I walk into those rooms of AA, I'm surrounded by people who love me for me and they get it and they understand. And that to me is mind blowing because what I'm doing is insane. And It's so powerful, and people like it's okay. I get it. We get it, and they celebrate your successes. Like first time I got thirty days, everybody was so happy and started clapping. I was like, "What is wrong with these people?" You know, but they they get it, they understand it, and I'll still never understand. You know how this disease takes over, but it does, and people who say that it's a choice, it's insulting because I don't, I don't choose to lose my family. I don't choose to get divorced. I didn't choose to, to almost lose my life. I, my dad certainly didn't choose to die at, at, you know, 70 something years young. He didn't choose to die. And people who tell me, well, she chose, or he chose booze or drugs over me. You know, I have yet to meet an addict, like I said, in the beginning, who wakes up saying, man i can't wait to use today. they do it for maintenance, and it doesn't even become pleasurable anymore it's about maintenance it's so you don't slip into withdrawal because it's hell and i'm i'm just I'm very blessed I'm very fortunate and I have my kids now um, I've had them for years, but then when I relapsed I, they were taken again from me, and rightfully so and I am humbled by all of this and I'm not mad at my ex. We've been divorced now for 13 years, and you know I've apologized. I've I've done my mins, and he deserved an apology, and he deserved to be told that what he did was the right thing. And at the time, while I was bitter and resentful, he did the right thing because he was trying to protect our, our children. And so for that, I'm very grateful that my kids have him as a dad that stepped up to the plate and did for me what I couldn't do for myself. So I'm very grateful.
0: Yeah, no, that's definitely something I would be too. Anyone looking after your children's a good thing.
1: Yeah. And, and putting them first, you know, I had to figure it out on my own. You can't, the first time I went to rehab, I went because I was pregnant and I wanted to save my son. The second time I went to rehab was to save my marriage. Um, the third and fourth time I went to rehab, I, I always did it for my family or my kids. It wasn't until I went to rehab and, did it for me. And people are like, well, that's selfish. You know, you need to get sober for these kids. No, I need to get sober for me and then everything else will fall into place. I need to respect myself enough to, to believe that I am worthy of sobriety and I am worthy of good things. But when you are in the disease and you are as sick as we are, you don't believe you deserve anything because you, you ruin everything.
0: We have a program. We have our own 10 steps and, Part of that, there's the four pillars of Addicts Anonymous. And the first pillar is self-love, because that's where you start. Unless you love yourself, you don't have a reason to get better. No, yeah. nobody, nobody says, you know what, because I hate myself, I'm going to go try to get sober.
1: Exactly. It's because
0: It's because somewhere deep down inside, under that self-hatred, you might love yourself and then decide, I need to get better. Because like you said, the whole point is getting better. Unless I'm in good shape, I can't be a good dad. Just like if, unless you're in good shape, you can't be a good mom. So you're totally yeah. right. It, it technically is selfish. Well, it's not, it is, but it is, you're being selfish for the sake of being unselfish. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, it
1: does. It does. And if I'm not selfish with staying sober, if I'm not selfish, then everything, I'm going to lose everything else. Yep. And, you know, going, going to therapy, the therapist that I have, I had an addictions therapist and he changed my life. And he made me see things that I didn't realize, you know, after I got sober uh, for the eight and a half years, I traded my, my, the bottle with relationships and with men. And I became, you can become addicted to relationships. You can become addicted to someone.
0: Oh yeah. I just wrote an article for us on codependency. That's a huge thing in the addiction community, getting addicted to a person. Yep.
1: Huge. And I didn't, I didn't know that. And my, it was brilliant. My therapist was brilliant. He said, I want you, I was in this very toxic, very years and years. I was in this toxic relationship. He said, I want you to 12-step him. I said, what? He said, I want you to say your life has become unmanageable because of this person. And I want you to start with step one. And it was brilliant because you can 12-step anything. You can 12-step anything that you are addicted to over an abundance, anything that changes uh, your psyche, your mind, um, you can 12 step it. And I did. And it really helped. We didn't, I didn't stop the relationship immediately. Um, Eventually we, we split, but we were together for about six years, but it was very, very, very toxic. And I realized he was my drug and I would do the same thing when I didn't have my drug. I would go to any, any length to get it back. And I had no respect for myself that I didn't think that I deserved better because I'm an alcoholic. I may be sober, but I'm still an alcoholic. And this is my past. Nobody wants to date somebody whose past is like this. So now I've been, I've been single for five years and it's been the best five years of my life to be honest, because yeah. I've, I've been able to find me. I've been able to, to, to be with my kids and I'm super blessed because of that.
0: Sounds like you're on the right track and the right path.
1: Yep. Uh, yeah. <laughs> By the grace of God, because I shouldn't be here. There's so many times I went in. I mean, I overdosed on alcohol. Um, I had alcohol poisoning, and it was always touch and go. People, my my family would find me face down on the floor, <clears throat> or I had a seizure one time and <clears throat> hit my head on the toilet because I was getting sick at the time.
0: Wow. That's that's dangerous.
1: Very, very dangerous. And my seizures were really they were coming fast and furious. And I split I I mean, I've split my face open. I've done all kinds of things because having seizures, because I would try to go through detox on my own. And it just it doesn't work like that. Yeah,
0: no, that's another thing that's dangerous, is doing that on your own because for especially alcohol, it's always best to have a medical detox.
1: Mm-hmm. Alcohol and opiates are two of the drugs that you will die from.
0: Well, no, if I'm not mistaken, that's benzos, not opiates. Opiates, you, you'll feel like you're dying, but it's benzos. Like Kalamazoo and Xanax, yeah.
1: See, I never got into pills, thank, thank the Lord. because, and I, and I never tried heroin, thank God, because I know if I did, I'd be hooked because I, yeah, I have an too. addictive personality.
0: I love the pills. I never got into heroin. And I'm yeah. like, just like you said, cause I'm all or nothing. I either go all the way or I don't. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Same with me. And I'm, and I'm really grateful because I do remember when I got hurt one day, not one day I was playing softball and I, and I almost broke my ankle and they gave me hydros and I took a few and I was like, I can't take these. Like, I cannot take these that I, I could have gone on and on and on, um, but I liked it. You know what I mean? And, and so I just never got into pills because they scared me. <laughs> they scared me more than alcohol, and I, I'm not sure why. But I started taking um, a drug called naltrexone. I don't know if you're familiar with it.
0: Yeah, that's but, to help you with cravings. Hmm? Yep.
1: They, they, they made it initially for opiates, but they learned that the receptors from opiates and alcohol are, are very much uh, the same very similar that the receptors that shoot up and so they started uh, recommending it for alcohol cravings too and it really it that and, and uh, vivitrol i would like to start getting the shot
0: yeah vivitrol is where if you drink you don't get drunk
1: mm-hmm. well then altrexone does that too i mean yeah you just get pissed off <laughs> because because you're you just got this big bottle and you're not getting drunk but you're sick still yeah. but you never get that high
0: I learned about that stuff when I was studying this guy. I am also an addict. I have 740 days clean, approximately, uh, something like that's that. That's
1: amazing. Well,
0: that's, that's why cool. I started this group was I went to rehab. It was March of 2020. There was no help out there because um, everything was shut down. There were no meetings. There was no nothing. But when I was in rehab, right. I saw so many people that needed help. And so many people, they had been, they had been in that rehab like, and God knows how many times one kid showed up at the rehab, o- overdose there, and they had to keep pumping his chest until the their ambulance came. I wasn't there for that. But he told me, oh, did you see that person over there? She literally saved my life. because She was the one giving me, you know, giving me a chest compressions. So, yeah, I mean, I just saw people needed help and I just wanted to help. So that's why I started. Amazing. This and people listen to these. So you're helping, too, because people tell me they do listen to this and it does help them
1: yeah it can it, you they can do it if I can do it trust me, anybody can do it because i it, i mean everybody's disease is serious, but I should not be here um I do remember when you said meeting somebody in rehab I met a a woman who was probably ten years younger than me and she had four kids and she was in there um and she had a preconditioned uh liver disease that she was not aware of, and she ended up she was very uh, first person, the first person I've ever seen that had jaundice and her eyes were yellow fingernails, scalp. Yeah. And she, she was fluorescent. I'd n- never seen anything like that. She ended up dying, uh, very young and so because they wouldn't put her on a liver transplant because she had to be sober for six months first to even be put on the list. And she didn't have six months. So that's very really yeah. sad.
0: Yeah, when I was in rehab, I also met a guy where he was talking about how he's lost everything, his family won't talk to him. And he was just, yeah, there was actually two guys that were just, like you said, jaundice, eyes, face, everything. And it's so sad, I mean, to show how, like you said, how powerful disease is, people are literally dying right in front of themselves. They look in the mirror and see themselves dying, and they're still using. How crazy is that? That's why I like Bill W. I, I'm a big believer in the uh, AA book, even though I started my own group and my own steps, I still believe a lot in AA. And the one word he uses a lot is insanity Because yep. what we do is insane.
1: It is, It it is. It's insane. And I'm really grateful for the people that I've met. I do. Um, there was one woman in rehab and she had, uh, I don't remember wet brain the the term escapes me. Um, but it's a what starts with the W. I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, wet brain before, but it's where you pretty much drank yourself into the point where your brain is actually saturated. It's irreversible. Uh, this woman, I guess, had been to this same rehab about a year and a half prior. Brilliant woman, had her own business, very educated uh, master's degree, working on her doctorate. And this was by consuming beer. She didn't only, she didn't drink liquor. She didn't, but she drank she consumed a lot. And when I saw her in rehab, she had come back because she had relapsed, but to the point where, uh, she was diagnosed with wet brain and it's, it's irreversible to the point where, so she would come to group in, in a bathrobe and she would not, remember why she's in there she would forget to bathe she woke up one night in the middle of the night screaming and crying and said I'm so sorry I went to the bars I just got back and I I want to I want to tell you that I went to the bar she's been sleeping the whole time and and she was actually she entered a a nursing home and she'll probably be there the rest of her life because it is irreversible it's almost like a a psychosis that um a drug-induced alcohol-induced psychosis
0: so sad such good people, like you said, successful, intelligent people. This disease does not discriminate. Doesn't matter no, it does what not. your socioeconomic background is, nothing.
1: Nope. And, and it's, it's very unfortunate. And like I said, the small town that we live in, my, my children have had to see, well, like I said, the hypocrisy, uh, not only in, in the church, but just as humans, that how we judge people. And what's funny is that one of these women, her husband, she'd come to me. She didn't even know I was an alcoholic. And uh, she came to me because her husband had relapsed. And I supported her throughout this whole thing. And he went to a rehab for five months. But then she found out that I relapsed. And my son's best friend is her, her son. And she refused to let her son come over to my house anymore. And I'm like, What? Like, I just don't understand that, but people are ignorant of the disease and, and I'm really, I commend you. And I think it's amazing what you're doing. Um, I I'm, and I'm dead serious. I mean, what you're doing is, is life-changing for a lot of people. They need to feel understood, but at the same time, the public needs educated. Uh, You know, I've, I've encouraged my family to go to, you know, um, like my, my, um, you know, for my kids to go through it, or at least listen, I want to educate them about what addiction is and how hereditary it is. And that it it is a disease. It's, it's diagnosed as a disease and it's not a choice. And, but people are so ignorant that if they hear that you're an addict, they just look down upon you like you're trash. And like you said, it doesn't discriminate.
0: No, it's a, it's a sad thing the way people look upon addicts.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm devastated for them. And I hate that they, they've had to go through with me what they've had to go through, but I I do believe that God has a plan for everyone. And, uh, he had a plan for you when you went through and look at how he's using you to help other people. And I know that he has a plan for me and, and I didn't go through this for nothing to keep it to myself. We can't keep what we have, you know, Without giving, we have to give it away. We have to give away what we've learned through this, especially because I survived. I'm a survivor, and I survived addiction, and I should not have. And like I said, if I can do it, they can do it.
0: Absolutely, and that's my uh, my last question for you: mm-hmm. is Do you have any advice for people listening and watching?
1: Oh, absolutely! Stop doubting yourself. Stop being scared. I was scared to get sober because I knew it was going to be painful. Getting sober, the withdrawal is so painful, but it's short term. I remember my sponsor one time told me, she said, You don't ever have to feel like this, feel like this again. And for some reason, that was an anomaly for me. And I'm like, I don't. I don't have to go through this again if I choose not to, but it takes work. You've got to surround yourself with people like minded. Go to meetings, huh. even if you don't like meetings.
0: I'm laughing because you're talking about like-minded people and hard work. That's mm-hmm. part of our, I told you about the four pillars. Mm-hmm. It goes self-love, discipline, hard work, and community.
1: So you're yes. talking about
0: working hard, getting the right people. Yeah, I'm definitely going to send you the step leader. You love them.
1: Absolutely. Yes, I would love to have that. But self-love is so important because yeah. if you don't think you deserve it, then you're not... you then you're not going to do it. Why would you, why would you do something good for yourself if you don't love yourself? You know, we can't, it's like trying to be in a relationship. If you don't love yourself, you can't give what you don't have for yourself. You can't give away love if you don't have it. And you have to love yourself to know that you're worth it. You're worthy of getting sober. And that to me was huge because I had to realize that I'm worthy just because of what I've done in my past doesn't mean I'm not worthy of a future.
0: That's great. This has been a great conversation.
1: Well, I appreciate it. And sorry, I know I'm a little ADHD.
0: <laughs> oh no, don't worry about it. I'm the same so, way. You weren't. You were you were on point. You got your story mm-hmm. out there. You were succinct. It was
1: good. Thank you. I'm really grateful that you allowed me to to come on and what you're doing is amazing and and I'm I, I keep doing it.
0: Thank you. I'm going to continue on with this cuz like you said people need to hear these stories.
1: Yep. They do. And they need to hear survival and that they if I can do it, they can do it.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, send me that information though. I'd love to see it.
0: Absolutely. So for anyone watching or listening, I hope you like this. And if you did, please go below and click us, give us a like. Also, you can subscribe so you'll see when new videos are uploaded. We're on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram. I always mention you can that you can go to our Facebook group and under the events tab, you'll see the link to our meetings every night at 6:30 through Zoom. And that's all I have for today. So until next time.